It was just the atmosphere, you know, of those days when, where anything went because the judiciary seemed to be completely castrated. This is the senior journalist Ajoy Bose. Bose dropped out of college. He became a Nakshalite and eventually he turned to journalism. He cut his teeth reporting some of the biggest stories of the 70s. And the media was also in a similar position, censored, and everybody knew that there was absolutely no free dissemination of news. So I think that uh, that was the kind of situation. The incident, which in my book uh, on the emergency, I highlighted, was the Turkman Gate massacre. Sanjay Gandhi, Indira Gandhi's youngest son, was widely believed to be her second in command. And he was hell-bent on family planning and urban development drives, even if these goals had to be achieved by force. At the peak of the emergency, in the summer of 1976, Turkman Gate, the southern entrance of the Red Fort in Delhi, saw the worst of it. Authorities sent in bulldozers to forcibly clear slums there, and government-backed squads picked up local men and forced them onto operating tables to be sterilized. The locals tried to fight back, and resistance grew, and police opened fire. The demolitions on the one hand and forcible sterilizations, it was a horrendous thing. And me, we as media, we weren't even allowed near Turkman Gate. We were stopped a good two miles. There was a cordon, police cordon, and we could hear some weird noises. And it was, I can tell you, for as a young crime reporter, it was a, such a frustrating thing. Ajoy Bose was with Patriot, a left-wing newspaper. He later co-wrote a book about Delhi under the emergency called For Reasons of State. And a second book, The Shah Commission Begins, on the inquiry which followed. And we would just hear stories of what was happening. It's only later that one's investigations from lane to lane to lane and getting their stories after the emergency was over that we sort of recreated what happened actually. At Turkman Gate, what began as a slum clearance and sterilization program ended in catastrophe. The senior journalist Kuldeep Nair later said that more than 100 people died in the operation. This is not how the government said the emergency would go. Early on, it had led the country to believe that this was a temporary phase till it got the economy and the political situation under control. It lulled the public by introducing a 20-point program with schemes like housing and debt relief for landless laborers and higher minimum wages. But soon, the emergency entered a more sinister phase. The weight of the Indian bureaucracy was suddenly thrown at sterilization and slum clearance programs to meet arbitrary targets. None of this was reported in the mainstream press. All through, Indira Gandhi continued to portray herself as the only political leader looking out for the people. Abraham Lincoln, who is called the consolidator of the states, was similarly accused of trying to break the states, of trying to put people in prison to override uh, uh, judgments and things like that. Do you see yourself? No, look, I'm a very humble person, and I think that Abraham Lincoln was one of the greatest uh, men there were. But uh, he did face uh, a somewhat similar problem. But we don't consider you any lesser than Lincoln, you know. 
As the emergency entered its second year, the government began preparing for radical constitutional change. General elections kept getting postponed, and there was talk of switching the country to a presidential system to give the government more power. With most of the opposition behind bars and the press muzzled, there would be little resistance to the government's designs. But one important check still remained, the courts. This is the story of the Keshavananda Bharati case and the constitutional crisis it emerged from. Last time, we saw how the court created the basic structure doctrine and how it passed its first test in the shadow of the emergency. We'll now follow the tightening of the emergency, including the government's efforts to undermine the courts and the Keshavananda judgment, culminating in yet another devastating constitutional amendment. I'm Raghu Karnad, and this is Friend of the Court, our series about the most important case in the legal history of independent India. The future constitution of India. All the world admires a deal well done. We can say that we have done this well. In the Raj Narayan case, challenging Indira Gandhi's election, the Supreme Court struck down parts of the 39th Amendment, which shielded the Prime Minister's election from legal challenge. The bench said that these provisions violated the basic structure. The meaning of the basic structure had remained a puzzle until this moment, and this was the first step towards clarifying it. Justice Y.V. Chandrachud noted that the amendment offended the common man's notion of justice, which was essential for democracies. Justice H.R. Khanna, the swing judge in Keshavananda, said parts of the 39th Amendment violated the principle of free and fair elections, an essential element of democracy. He also clarified that all fundamental rights, except the right to property, were part of the basic structure. For two years after the Keshavananda judgment, the basic structure doctrine faded out of the public gaze. The Raj Narayan judgment reaffirmed the doctrine to keep the country's most powerful elected official in check. But the government's response was swift. On November 10th, 1975, three days after the judgment in Raj Narayan, a full bench assembled in court. The review came up unexpectedly. No review petition was filed. So it suddenly came up and it was posted on a Monday and 13 judges was constituted. This is senior advocate Arvind Datar. As he says, Chief Justice A. N. Ray constituted a bench to re-examine Keshavananda Bharati. It's true that no petition was filed, as is common practice in important constitutional matters. But a few weeks earlier, while hearing the election case, the Attorney General had orally requested a review of Keshavananda, saying that there was no clarity on the basic structure doctrine. So on October 20th, Ray issued an order saying that a 13-judge bench would convene they would consider whether the basic structure judgment was correct. This was unprecedented. A review is rarely ordered on just an oral plea. 
And this drove speculation that Ray was under pressure from the government to do something, anything, to try and reopen the Keshavananda judgment. As the review loomed, Nani Palkiwala, who had passionately fought to limit Parliament's amending power, decided to act. First, he dashed off a letter to the Prime Minister, urging her to drop the attempt to overrule Keshavananda. And then on 10th November, when the case came up for hearing, Palkiwala was in courtroom number one to defend the doctrine. No, he was very, very eloquent and uh, he came out with uh, very good, innovative, sound arguments. And his eloquence was, of course, uh, magnificent. He was at the peak of his judicial or juridical powers. Or, uh, so it was certainly a very, very masterly performance. Like advocate Prashant Bhushan, whom you just heard from, many people never forgot that performance. When the matter was called out, Palkiwala argued on multiple fronts. He mixed logic, rhetoric, and legal acumen in a dazzling display. He argued that there were no cogent reasons to undertake a review, and even if it could be done, it should not be done. So he said that what is the basis for the review? I mean, has the court found that this judgment, Keswanand Bharti, has had a very baneful effect on jurisprudence or on uh, democracy or on public life or anything like that. Who has said that? Where has it been said? And uh, if at all, that judgment has shown the importance uh, over the last three years, the correctness and importance of that judgment has been proved. Uh, One constitution amendment has been struck down by using and applying that judgment. Palkiwala recalled that he'd been accused of fear-mongering while arguing in the Keshavananda case. But now, living through the emergency, his worries no longer appeared hypothetical. Bhushan, who was present in court and later wrote about it, paraphrases some of what he said. Democracy today is under threat. Every kind of uh, amendment can be pushed through. This is the emergency. Anything can be done. The only thing that would save us or save our democracy would be Keswanand Bharti. Justice Beg remarked that the court found it difficult to understand the Keshavananda Bharati judgment. Palkiwala was annoyed. Datar tells us more. I mean, you can make out the man is livid with anger as to what they're doing. So they said that we don't know what's the basic structure. So he says, I never thought that I'll live to see the Supreme Court not understanding its own judgment. Then he says, what is basic structure? He said, are we a debating society? Why are we reviewing it? We have spent 70 odd days, 80 odd days listening to this case and now you want to review it. He said, due process is not defined. There's so many important phrases which are not defined, but they are still understood. Like, what's a reasonable man? Nobody can define it precisely. So many important concepts are uh, kept deliberately Impossible to define because they have to keep on meeting the changes of time. So he said essential features are essential features. You don't have to define them. The next day, it was the government's turn to respond to Palkiwala. The Chief Justice turned to Attorney General Niren De. A.K. Ganguly, who's now a senior advocate, worked with De as a young lawyer and he was in the court that day. He tells us what happened next. He said, uh, Mr. Attorney General, am I not uh, correct that there have been occasions when you had been uh, suggesting 
that the decision would require a reconsideration. And Nirendra stood up and he said, uh, that is true, Milot. In many cases, uh, I have suggested that because when the question came as to what are the basic features of the constitution, we were struggling to find out where, which are those. Because the Krishna Bharati does not expressly lay down which are those. Some judges have listed some of them. Others have not spoken anything about it. Justice Khanna asked Day if the basic structure had come in the way of the government's work so far. He said it had not. But they pointed out that the meaning of the basic structure was unclear and had caused uncertainty in lawmaking. So this is, there is a kind of an ambiguity. So we were saying that it is better that we know for certain what are those basic features so that the government is also you know, alerted and they know those are the limits of their authority and they cannot cross cross those limits. As the arguments progressed, one question would not go away. What had prompted this review? Ray made a surprising claim. He said that Tamil Nadu and some other state governments had also sought a review. Then, things took a turn. Advocate General of Tamil Nadu, Mr. Goen Swamnathan, he had the courage to get up and said, I never asked for the review. And J.M. Thakur of Gujarat said, we never asked for the review. Don't you know why we are here? That was Datar again, telling us how it all started to come apart. Even the other judges were asking questions. On November 12th, the courtroom was once again packed. Niren Day was set to resume his arguments. Before that, however, Chief Justice A.N. Ray abruptly declared, the bench is dissolved. For two days, he reportedly said, arguments had, quote, gone on in the air. Prashant Bhushan tells us more. I think uh, A.N. Ray must have got a sense of what his brother judges were feeling. They must have been uncomfortable with uh, this constitution of this review bench, especially after Palkiwala's arguments. So, of course, there was fear during the emergency and the fear, but that fear uh, didn't percolate down to all the 13 judges. Collectively, they felt, I think, that... Uh, uh, this was a bit too much, this attempted review. This attempt to overturn Keshavananda Bharati had been unsuccessful. Though the emergency was in force, the judiciary was not completely toothless. And the Supreme Court wasn't alone in pushing back. High courts across the country were creating other headaches for the government. Before it had announced the emergency, on the morning of June 26, 1975, the government had begun imprisoning its opponents. Opposition leaders J.P. Narayan, Moraji Desai, Madhu Dandavate, A.B. Vajpayee, L.K. Advani, Raj Narayan, Pilu Modi and hundreds of others were thrown in jail. Within 24 hours, the government effectively suspended the fundamental right to life and liberty. It did so by preventing prisoners from challenging their arrest in court. This was something by itself, apart from the duration of the uh, incarceration. By itself, it was incredible parliamentary that was BJP leader L.K. Advani. In 1975, he was a Rajya Sabha MP. 
he and Vajpayee were detained in Bangalore, where they were attending a parliamentary committee meeting. Their lawyers defied the government ban on approaching the courts and challenged their arrest anyway. In fact, the reaction of the court also that day, that day or a day later, when we filed our habeas corpus, was something similar to what's gone wrong with this government. Habeas corpus is a constitutional protection against illegal arrest. It means a judge can ask the police to present a prisoner before a court to determine the legality of their arrest. Fundamentally, it's a provision against the state's power to make a person disappear. The Karnataka High Court and eight other high courts hearing similar petitions across the country sided with the prisoners and upheld their right to challenge their arrests. The government counter-challenged these rulings and the case went to the Supreme Court before a five-judge bench headed by Chief Justice Ray. Prominent members of the bar, including C.K. Daftari, Shanti Bhushan, Ram Jaitmalani, Anil Divan, and Soli Sorabji represented the detainees. This eventually became known as the ADM Jabalpur case, or the habeas corpus case. Anil Divan later spoke about his role. And the bench was, of course, Justice, Chief Justice Ray. To his right was Justice Kanna. I still remember Justice Bey, Justice Chandraju, and Justice Bakorji. And strong arguments took place. I argued that the position now being contended for by the government is worse than a Roman slave. Because if a Roman slave is attacked physically or is maimed, he had a remedy. He could go and make complaint. Today, the Indian citizen doesn't even have that right if the government is correct. These hearings produced one of the most talked about courtroom exchanges in our history. Attorney General Nirende said the prisoners could not challenge their arrests because in an emergency, citizens had no right to life. On hearing this, Justice Khanna asked him if a policeman killed someone out of personal enmity, would that be considered legal? Here's Khanna's son, Rajiv. I think Nirende, in fairness of things, said that consistent with my argument, the right of life is also extinguished during a period of emergency. On a hot April day in 1976, as 14 fans whirred overhead, young lawyers craned to hear the outcome in the dimly lit courtroom. They expected the bench to rule in favor of the prisoners and uphold the rights of citizens. To everyone's shock, the court sided with the government. In a four-to-one judgment, the bench ruled that prisoners could not challenge their arrests. In other words, the court held that citizens could not expect to enjoy their fundamental right to life and liberty in an emergency. Justice Baig even observed that the detainees were being well-fed and treated almost maternally by the state. Here's Anil Divan reading out excerpts from another opinion. This is what Chandrachu held, and I'll read out those four lines so that you don't forget the impact. He writes in one of his last few paragraphs, Council after Council expressed the fear that during the emergency, the executive may whip and strip and starve the data room. And if this be our judgment, even shoot him down. This was our argument that recorded. Such misdeeds have not tarnished the record of free India 
and I have a diamond bright, diamond hard hope that such things will never come to pass. But he might have been fearful, but to write this and give a certificate to the government is, I think, the lowest watermark which the Supreme Court ever reached. Only one judge wrote a powerful dissent. That was Justice H.R. Khanna. Here's Rajiv Khanna again. And he concluded his dissenting judgment by quoting the views of Justice Hughes, which are as under a dissent in a court of last resort, to use his words, is an appeal to the brooding spirit of the law, to the intelligence of a future date, when a later decision may possibly correct an error which the dissenting judgment believes the court to have betrayed. So I think he, he was he recognized the fact that Hopefully, someday, his views will be upheld. The New York Times made a special mention of Khanna's views. New York wrote that if India ever finds its way back to the freedom and democracy that were proud hallmarks of its first 18 years as an independent nation, someone will surely erect a monument to Justice Hachar Khanna of the Supreme Court. In five months, the court had gone from striking down a constitutional amendment in the election case to validating tyranny it had completely capitulated to the government. Journalist Ajoy Bose explains how things got to this point. I think that it was a very, very abnormal time. And I think that kind of really underlined the abnormality. But a lot of this drama was playing out in court. But increasingly, there are courts. And this, from a professor to a, a rickshaw knew that the courts the judiciary was no longer impartial, was no longer, it was, an, you know, uh, it was with the government and the government could do anything. It's impossible to grasp the individual motivations of each of the judges, but the political atmosphere in which they were functioning holds some clues. Events in the run-up to the case suggest that the government was stepping up pressure. In December of 1975, a pamphlet titled Fresh Look at Our Constitution, Some Suggestions, surfaced in Delhi. It was the work of two Congress politicians. Their pamphlet recommended that judges to the higher judiciary be appointed by the president on the advice of the Council of Ministers. Then, the Prime Minister refused to renew the appointments of two additional judges. U.R. Lalit of the Bombay High Court and R.N. Agarwal of the Delhi High Court. Both of them had earlier ruled in favor of political prisoners. There was speculation that the judges on the Supreme Court bench wanted to avoid a similar fate. And their fears were not entirely unfounded. Nine months after the habeas corpus judgment, Justice H.R. Khanna, the sole dissenting judge in that case, paid the price for his opinion. When he wrote the judgment, he was prepared that this is a judgment which is going to cost him the Chief Justiceship of India. And he mentioned that to his sister after dictating the judgment. The government superseded him and appointed his immediate junior, Justice Beg, as the next Chief Justice of India. Like the three judges superseded after Keshavananda, Khanna too resigned in protest. The habeas corpus case showed the government's tightening grip over democratic institutions. But a more direct assault on the constitution was in the works. 
in January 1976, there was talk in Parliament of making significant changes to the Constitution. The next month, the Congress appointed a committee headed by Defence Minister Sardar Swaran Singh to study the Constitution and recommend changes. This eventually culminated in the 42nd Amendment. On the 1st of September, Indira Gandhi's trusted law minister, H.R. Gokhale, introduced the amendment in the Lok Sabha. A special session of the Parliament is convened to consider the 44th Constitutional Amendment Bill. This historic piece of legislation seeks to reassert the supremacy of the Parliament and its powers to amend any provision in the Constitution. It opened with a reminder, quote, A Constitution to be living must be growing, followed by a warning. If the constitution was not amended, the government would not be able to achieve its developmental objectives. The amendment was drastic and exhaustive and proposed a total of 59 changes. It's not for nothing that the 42nd Amendment has been called the mini-constitution. The preamble, the key to the constitution, for the first time incorporates the words socialism and secularism. The directive principles of state policy take precedence over the fundamental rights, and they are enforceable. If you've been paying attention so far, you'll notice that these ideas aren't new. Indira Gandhi had been laying out some version of them since she came to power in the late 1960s. She tried to push them through earlier with amendments which had led to the Keshavananda challenge in the first place. What was different this time was that she was making these changes while most of the opposition was behind bars. The opposition members still left in Parliament objected to the introduction of the bill. H.M. Patel, a Swatantra Party MP from Gujarat, reminded the House that during an emergency, Parliament was authorised only to conduct business that was essential for the functioning of the government. Tridib Chaudhary from West Bengal reminded the government that the Supreme Court prevented Parliament from altering the basic structure. Gokhale responded by attacking the Keshavananda ruling. He said that the court had not clearly outlined what fell within the basic structure, so it was difficult to say that the new amendment violated it. Despite the opposition's objections, the Lok Sabha speaker permitted the bill to be debated. Let's look at some of the bill's provisions. It introduced a new chapter called the Fundamental Duties. Indira Gandhi said that this was added to, quote, establish a democratic balance, to rectify what she described as a one-sided stress on rights. These duties were not enforceable, meaning citizens couldn't be punished for violating them. But it signaled a shift in the relationship between the government and citizens. Lawrence Liang, professor of law at Ambedkar University, tells us more. It's a shift. It's a shift in the vocabulary of political power. When you speak the language of duties, you're already speaking an inverted vertical relation, where you're looking at the idea of an all-encompassing state to whom citizens are you know, owe duties. Then came the big ones. Remember Article 31C, the controversial provision that debuted in the 25th Amendment. Its original avatar made the fundamental rights to freedom, equality, and property subordinate to one directive principle, the one that said that the government had to work for the common good. The Keshavnanda judgment had struck down parts of it. Now, the 42nd Amendment gave it a draconian new life. This version made the fundamental rights to equality, freedom, and property secondary to all the directive principles, meaning those rights would now be inferior to even things like the prevention of cow slaughter, promotion of cottage industries, and a uniform civil code. Basically says that any law 
that is introduced with the objective of advancing the objectives of the directive principles were beyond the pale of judicial review right in that no challenge could be made on the grounds of their violating fundamental rights uh, which is you know overturning the classical distinction between fundamental rights and directive principles if as we've already seen fundamental rights are primary because they can be justiciable here is an instance where all of a sudden a directive principle is being given primacy the amendment allowed parliament to make laws banning broadly defined quote anti-national activities such laws also could not be struck down even if they violated the rights to freedom equality and property but this wasn't all the amendment dealt a lethal blow to the balance of power between the government and court it barred courts from hearing election disputes and restricted the powers of high courts then it handed back to parliament the absolute power to amend the constitution in other words it rejected the idea that the constitution had a basic structure which parliament could not touch another clause completed this shift towards parliamentary supremacy former supreme court judge rowington nariman explains 368 four went further and said you cannot touch an amendment on any ground whatsoever so that suppose for example an amendment required ratification and was not ratified you could not touch it even on that ground even on that procedural ground so 368 and 5 was the pernicious provisions which did away with kesavananda bharti and the basic structure doctrine with this the government had finally exacted its revenge for the kesavananda judgment some mps cheered what they called the ceremonial burial of the basic structure doctrine here's indira gandhi defending the changes in an interview i don't think the courts are entirely uh, i don't think these matters have been taken out of the hands of the courts but all that we are trying to do is to give parliament its due rights because we found that they were being impinged upon and the constitution was in, being interpreted in such a way uh, that which was against its very spirit and which prevented any kind of reform The 42nd Amendment came into force in December 1976. The day after the Lok Sabha passed it, the Times of India carried a report headlined No More Lawyers Paradise. The amendment meant that constitutional lawyers could no longer quote quibble in the courts. In fact, the courts could no longer serve as an effective check on government excess. And this is exactly what Palkiwala and others were warning about, saying that, you know, unless there are, are limitations you have someone who is so inclined they will have the ability to you know make this into a dictatorship at the end of 1976 the lok sabha extended its term by another year the opposition benches demanded that the government end the emergency and hold elections but the government refused it argued that an election now would give a new lease of life to the opposition in its efforts to undermine democracy Within 3 months though Indira Gandhi changed her mind. On the 18th of January 1977, Mrs Gandhi with her instinct for the dramatic surprised the world by making an unscheduled broadcast to the nation. Fresh elections were announced. Even her closest advisers were taken by surprise, while her critics saw the elections as a ploy. Ajay Bose again. And I just felt that she was somebody who liked to have this legitimacy that she didn't want to keep 
this election being uh, postponed every year, every year, every year, because that was an admission that things were abnormal in the country. And she was acutely conscious of what Western media thought of her. We just felt that now they had completely whipped the country into submission. They just wanted legitimacy. Soon after that announcement, the government released the political prisoners it had kept behind bars, some since June 1975. The opposition leaders swung into campaign mode immediately. They joined hands to form the Janata Party to take on the Congress. Inevitably, the election turned into a referendum on the emergency. The new party promised to restore fundamental freedoms and democratic government. They said it was a choice between democracy and dictatorship. Here's Janata leader Jai Prakash Narayan himself describing the choice. The Prime Minister has already acted in a dictatorial manner, giving us a foretaste of what she might do if she receives a mandate from the people again to rule over the country. But Gandhi insisted it was a choice between democracy and chaos. The Congress party was confident. Indira Gandhi was receiving reports of her popularity from various sources, including the Intelligence Bureau. But on results day in March 1977, the country gave her a rude shock. The Janta Party had won 295 seats. In a poetic twist, Raj Narayan defeated Indira Gandhi in Raibareli. Gandhi's other old rival, Morarji Desai, became the country's first non-Congress Prime Minister. The manner and the margin of Mr. Desai's election victory last month still has Delhi breathless. As the new ministers filed in to acting President Jati to take their oaths of office, they were completing what amounts to a political revolution, the replacement after 30 years in power of India's Congress party, architects of independence, the party of Pandit Nehru and Mrs. Gandhi. Morarji Desai assured the country that the Janta government would investigate the excesses of the emergency. Unless the people are fearless, no democracy is ever safe. Therefore, we have got to see that people become fearless. That is how government should act and work. Desai, whom you just heard, promised a new kind of rule. One of his priorities was undoing Indira Gandhi's most drastic recent constitutional changes. Join us next time for the final episode of Season 2 of Friend of the Court. We'll follow the Janta government's efforts to restore the constitution and join Palkhiwala in one final fight to bring the basic structure doctrine back to life. A constitutional crisis brewing for over a decade is about to get one more chance at resolution. Until then, I'm your host, Raghu Karnad, and this is Friend of the Court. Friend of the Court is a project by the Anil Devan Foundation. Thank you to the guests on this episode. Ajoy Bose, A.K. Ganguly, 
Arvind Datar, Lawrence Liang, Prashant Bhushan, Rajiv Khanna, and Justice Rohinton Narman. The show was written and researched by Bhavya Dore and Ramya Bodupali. Legal research and fact-checking was provided by Aishwarya Chaturvedi. The scripts were edited by Supriya Nair. The show was produced by Gaurav Vaz, audio production and music score by Sachi Rajadhyaksha, and mastered by Ayan De. Lawrence Liang, Ranveer Singh, Sham Divan and Vivek Divan were advisors on this series. Special thanks to Anand Thakur, Geeta Sehgal, Homi Ranina, Lalita Kumaramangalam and Vimal Thakur.